Okay, I guess before we move into this, I want to apologize to you, Kimmy. <laughs> oh, God. What? What is it? Uh, I want to apologize for abandoning you to uh, have anal sex with my homosexual lover, Eric. <laughs> Am I supposed to forgive you? Hey there, I'm Jordan. And I'm Nick. We're just two regular guys who love talking about film. And now, we'd like to talk to you. We decided to break down our discussions into three parts. Because everyone loves a gimmick. We discuss our expectations for a film before we watch it. That's take one. We give our immediate thoughts following the film. That's take two. And finally, we research the film at length to prepare for an informed and in-depth discussion. And that's take three. So if you love film even half as much as we do, join in on the conversation. This is Take Three, a movie podcast. Take one. I did get my second COVID shot today, which is exciting. That's great. Yes, yes. That is fantastic. So in just two weeks, we will both be officially inoculated from this bitch. The lady that I got my shot from was like, you need to keep your card on you. She was like, you never know when you might have to prove that you are vaccinated to somebody. Oh, wow. In time, it could be how we get into any sort of public event. That seems silly. You could forge these so easily. Oh, and people are. People are forging them. I wish they would, like, give me a barcode on my skin or something like that 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 can be scanned. (laughs) We're not spreading official information here, but I'm just saying that that's what the lady told me, like, to keep that on you because that is proof that you've gotten this shot twice. Maybe I'll laminate it then. That's what my mom told me to do. I thought that was a good idea. You go into the grocery store, I'm sure they're not going to, like, stand at the door and make you prove it, but... Right. And it's not, like, credit card-sized either. It's a little bit bigger, so, like, you couldn't fit it in your wallet I know! That's so frustrating! <laughs> because in that same conversation with my mom, she's like, oh, it fits in my wallet. I'm like, well, <laughs> I have a tinier wallet than you. <laughs> we should talk about what we're, what we're actually here for. We are here to do the movie Scooby-Doo New York with our <laughs> wonderful... Beautiful, fantastic aunt. Kimmy. Kimberly. It's Kimmy's turn. And she picked this movie. We have never heard of it. I know nothing about it. I am going in with the knowledge that Philip Seymour Hoffman is in this movie. That's about all I know about charcuterie New York as well. It sounds like something she would like. Kimmy has really good taste in movies, in my opinion. So when we were asking her what movie she wanted to do for this episode, I told her, I said, look, you know, we have some time. We hadn't even (laughs) recorded Courtney's episode yet. We have some time. Just think about it. Make a decision. You know, Kayleen was going through a bunch of different movies and we were discussing them. You know, you totally have time. (laughs) And Kimmy's like. Kimmy did not hesitate. A single moment. (laughs) She's like, spatula New York. And (laughs) I was like, okay, I'm going to need some help pronouncing it. But uh, yeah, let's do it. The last time that one of them recommended a movie I'd never heard of, it was Brigsby Bear. And I was like, (laughs) okay, (laughs) I definitely trust that she picked a movie that will be fun to talk about and hopefully will teach me how to pronounce the word. That is on the title of this episode. (laughs) 
I had only heard her talk about Symbiote New York, like, like maybe once or twice here and there, maybe answering some of the questions that she had on her podcast. And I put it on my watch list because it sounded interesting and she kept bringing it up and I was like, yeah, I'm, it sounds cool. So I'm finally glad that I, A, can watch it and B, can watch it and like understand it with the both of you. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So so they talked about it on their – see, I feel so bad because I feel like they'll bring up movies and I, I just will forget – because, like, I do listen to the fucking podcast. Like, I do listen to... Don't lie to, to them. I do. Don't lie to them. <laughs> I fucking love their podcast. But it's time. my favorite podcast. But uh, this particular movie does not ring a bell to me at all. Like, I do not remember <laughs> her talking about this. Oh, if you don't know which podcast we're talking about, because you maybe didn't listen to our last episode, Kimmy is from We Explain Movies. They are also a wonderful podcast that you should definitely listen to. And when you always give me that fucking look when I try, I just want to give people some context. <laughs> For the record, Kimmy, we definitely know that the movie is called Synecdoche, New York. I still can't pronounce that word. Sin. Sin. Ek. Ek. Doe. Doe. Key. Key. Sin ek do key. Sinek do key. Synecdoche. <laughs> okay, I see this all the time. I think it's a uh it's like a TikTok audio or even uh like a Tumblr photo or GIF set or something where it's someone's teaching Ross how to say a French word. I know exactly what you're talking about. It's Joey. Phoebe is teaching Joey French, and she's like, je m'appelle Claude. She says, je, je, ma, 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 pel, pel. Uh, je m'appelle les poupous. Yeah, he, he has no idea. Comedy um, gold. <laughs> well, it's better you have to be on the show. You have to listen to the, the show. Watch Friends. It's amazing. Speaking of Friends... Our friend Kimmy will be here soon in take two and take three to steer this ship forward. <laughs> Kimmy is an actress and a sea captain. Ooh. So it'll be good that she is here because we're sinking and she can help us. <laughs> Wait, before we go to take two, give me an update on your plants. <gasps> okay. Uh, let me update you on my plants. Uh, so one, two, three, four, five, six seven eight eight are currently in water one two three four five six seven eight are in bags at the moment i'm still waiting for roots in the bags i have two that have sprouts only one of those have like extended past the top of the pit but i can see the other one like it's cracked open so much that i can see the other sprout coming up we're getting there I have a little, like, collection of jars and stuff. Good deal. Good deal. Well, we're getting I, I just have one question. How mature do they have to be for you to smoke them? You got me. I, you, you got me. <laughs> I have no clever response for that. Always good to end on a strong note. <laughs> Let's go to take two. Take two. Take two. Kimmy, come in here. Please, Kimmy, please. We need you. We need you, Kimmy. Take two. Okay, we always, like, are so bad at introducing these things. I know, we, we're flat at it, too. We always just, like, kind of start chatting, and then some of the sh this shit makes it in, so. <laughs> That's a good idea. 
Yeah, maybe this is it. Maybe this is just me maybe just start this there. Is it. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, everybody. <laughs> Welcome. We literally just started talking, <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> we have the wonderful and fabulous Kimmy here. Yes. Welcome, hey. welcome. We're so happy to have you. I'm so happy, and I'm just like, my cheeks hurt so bad from smiling. I'm so nervous and excited to be here. I feel like so special. Dude, you are so special. We're so happy to have you. Um, oh my gosh. And you have a lot of explaining to do, but first talk to us about your experience with this movie. Do a little take one in our take two. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah, this movie, Synecdoche, New York, was actually recommended to me by my great, great friend whose house I'm actually in right now. So it's kind of kismet that this is happening How right appropriate. now. That is so yeah. cool. Yeah. <laughs> My great friend, his name is Tyler. He's like a brother to me. And he's also, because you guys watched the film I made, he was the director of photography on Oh, wow. The film I made. So he's like super yeah. talented. That's awesome. He's incredibly talented, yes. <laughs> um, he introduced me to this movie. He's a huge Charlie Kaufman fan. And he's also a huge Paul Thomas Anderson fan. So he got me into him as well. He was like, you need to watch this movie. I think it's the best film ever made. Oh, wow. And I was like, whoa, that, them's fine words, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it really takes me a long time to watch movies that are like, you know, not just like the run-of-the-mill movie because there's a certain amount of attention that I want to provide to a movie. And that doesn't happen all the time. Like, you have to be in the mood to, like, take on something like... Totally. Synecdoche, New York, yeah, yeah. you know? <laughs> So I put it off for a long time and I just put it on one day and it was like kind of a gloomy day, I suppose, which was so on brand <laughs> for the film. Absolutely. I have to say, before I say anything about this film, I just want to give credit where credit is due. A lot of the thoughts that I have are just regurgitations of what Tyler and I have discussed. <laughs> and he is a big, big fan of it. And I wholly agree with a majority of his sentiments. So anything that I say, it's not purely an original thought. So I just want to put that credit <laughs> where where is necessary. So good deal. Anyways, I put this move yeah, thanks. And I so I just put this movie on and I suddenly realized in the middle of the movie the way that I felt. It was so interesting because I felt like the way that I felt was what the movie was intending to portray. Like, it just picked me up, and I was along for the ride. And I've never been gripped by a movie in such a like, internal way. Um, and Tyler and I talked about it. It's kind of the same way that you listen to a piece of music, like a piece of really emotional music. The feelings that it evokes from you just kind of bubble up and come up and you're just taken on that emotional ride and journey and uh this movie did that for me i'd only seen it that one time and i also believe that it's probably arguably the best film ever made wow it's not my favorite film <laughs> so don't get me wrong i can't like throw this on like i throw on lord of the rings <laughs> but i think that it is a really well-made film. It's like an expertly, geniusly made totally. film by Charlie Kaufman. And it is his 
feature directorial debut. What? Oh, well, I don't think I realized yeah. that. Oh, my God. <laughs> I just think that he's just of another world, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Okay. Uh, that's that's great. I'm... <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, this movie. Um. <laughs> I have to say one thing because I just I just remembered something um, when I said Lord of the Rings. I am coming on this episode a little salty here because my favorite movie is Lord of the Rings. And I loved your guys' episode on it. I was a little upset that you guys didn't love it. Oh. <laughs> so <laughs> I took a little bit of offense to that. <laughs> so... If if I was on that episode, I would have stuffed it down your throat and made you like it. So, <laughs> so I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, I think I think with me at least, I knew that that project involved nine hours of movie, and I think if I were to like be able to sit down and digest that whole project for maybe like a week or two weeks, I probably totally. can appreciate it more. And uh, for you, I will do my best to to do that because yeah. I really you you talk about it a lot, and I I see how excited that you get when you when you talk about Lord of the Rings, and I think those films deserve that. So I think we definitely went about it the wrong way when it came to watching it. I think just because, probably because of time constraints, yeah. Uh, but yeah. it does sort of make it feel more like it is one giant story. And I definitely enjoyed the bare bones of the story. I think there were just certain parts of it that maybe I didn't understand. That's a movie that you really got to pay attention to the mythology. And I don't know that I was yeah. there. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong. I, I totally agree with you. And I think after having watched it so many times throughout my life, even having kind of like the repetition and understanding of what is already happening in the story brings more depth to it as well yeah. because you understand the relationships and like the history about each place and like relationships between cultures and species and stuff like that. So so I can't fault you for that. <laughs> and if you haven't seen it a hundred times like me. <laughs> and also, I mean, props for props to I mean, talk about it, an incredible achievement in filmmaking. Like Wow. Mm -hmm. Peter Jackson will be known forever for that. Forever and ever, amen. <laughs> Two questions. Okay. One, uh, do you like the Hobbit series? No. Okay, no. I Yeah, I, most so people quick. that I ask that question <laughs> say no. They're such ass. God, they're such ass. <laughs> they're so terrible. Like, technically, like, script-wise, like, they're just trash. It's such an embarrassment. That's so sad that he would, like, <laughs> sad. I know. Yeah. Like, tarnish his legacy like that, but. I know, like, why, why do you have to bring in, like, fucking Feely or Keely? I can't remember his name. And, like, why do you have to have some kind of romantic relationship with Evangeline Lilly? Like, why? <laughs> and why is Orlando Bloom so, like, angry and yeah. the whole thing it doesn't make any sense and he's older and elves are supposed to be immortal like you can't come back <laughs> like with wrinkles and like i'm sorry like orlando bloom is attractive at any age but you can't come back and put some cgi on your face and pretend that he is younger totally. than the than the lord of the rings trilogy you can't fucking do that is this the one with martin freeman is this the right yeah yeah okay. Okay, and two, have you read the books? I read The Hobbit. It's for kids, you know, yeah. so it's definitely more digestible. 
And I do recall likely in my sophomore year of high school that I got through most of the fellowship. Mm -hmm. And then it was kind of confusing for me because it starts to get into some of the plot points that are in the Two Towers movie, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, So I was just like too young to appreciate it because they're dense. Yeah. You know, they are goddamn encyclopedias, which I love. And I feel like, you know, now in life I would be able to go back to and appreciate more. But it was like too much for me to digest at that point. So I I didn't didn't go back to it. Does that make me... A fake fan? No, definitely not. not. No, definitely no. not. You you can be a fan of the movie and not necessarily the book. I am that in several cases. Uh, I guess Preach. my my thought was just maybe if you would read the books, maybe if you had like a, a better understanding of the mythology off the bat because you had read them before. But maybe you're just – I mean you're definitely smarter than me. So you could pick up on that shit more easily. <laughs> that is not true. Don't talk about my friend like that. but i think i think maybe some of the lore in the books may be stuck and that helps me a little bit but also really like one time i had surgery in uh my senior year of high school and my really good friend lent me the extended version of the movies and i like to joke yeah and i like to joke that i what when I finished all three, including all the DVD extra featurettes, I was healed. <laughs> no, <laughs> and I learned a lot from watching all of those. And yeah, like I said, just like the repetitiveness of hearing the names. Oh, like that's Weathertop. Like you know, oh that's Minas Tirith. And knowing that, I don't know, brings more um, groundedness to the story. It doesn't seem so vast anymore. So. Well, that makes total sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Sorry okay. for that tangent, but... No, it was beautiful. <laughs> I'm so glad we got to talk to you about that. That's awesome, yeah. especially on here. Okay, I guess before we move into this, I want to apologize to you, Kimmy. <laughs> oh, God. What? What is it? Uh, I want to apologize for abandoning you to uh, have anal sex with my homosexual lover, Eric. <laughs> Am I supposed to forgive you? Yeah, I guess you can. I need forgiveness. No, I don't. I don't forgive you. Oh and now God. I die. <laughs> Yo, Jesus. what the fuck? Yes. That's- so I'm a little bit nervous. I, one of my the reasons for me being so nervous today is that, you know, I thought it was hilarious when you guys messaged me like, hey, Kimmy, do you know what movie you might want to do? You know, you can think about it for a while. And I was like, Synecdoche, New York. Let's do we it. We told that story in take one. Yeah, it's yeah. yes. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I'm so ready. Mostly because, and I um, I don't know if you guys have any questions or so, or anything, but I would really like to hear your guys' thoughts because – it's my desire to learn more about this movie and what everything means because there's so much to dissect from it. And I have my own thoughts separate from what might be the actual like factual knowledge behind all the choices made in the film because I think that this film is hugely subjective and personal to each viewer. So it might mean something different for you than it means for me. Um, but I, I would really just like to know, like, how you feel and then maybe corroborate that with what it actually means in the next take. You know what I mean? Totally. Totally. 
Yeah. Do you want to go first, Nick? Um, sure. Okay. So I, okay, I'll, I'll lay it out. <laughs> I was watching this movie and I was like, oh my God, like I love Philip Seymour Hoffman and I love Catherine Keener and I love Jennifer Jason Lee and like, this is, this is great. And I love Michelle Williams and uh, the story was going on and it was making sense. And then I think, I think maybe the first part when it starts to go off the rails is uh, when she's trying to rent the apartment and she's just like, I'm worried about dying in the fire that's going on. You know what I mean? And she, the yes. lady is just still trying to sell her this apartment. And I'm like, oh, okay, it's one of these weird kind of movies. Like, this is cool. <laughs> okay. And then uh, time started moving very interestingly. I lost my ability yes. to sit there and, and know that I'm being taken along on a ride. I have no clue what's going on. Yeah. I'm completely I, I, baffled. I agree with you. Yeah. Mostly, I guess, oh, are you, is that all? Or, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, I, no, no. I didn't mean to sound like that. <laughs> no, I would say the beginning and the end were really, really good for me. And the middle is not bad. It's just nonsensical in, in my eyes right now. I don't know how to put it mm -hmm. together. Uh, yeah, like I felt that way when I watched Arrival for the first time. <laughs> totally, I was like, yeah. I know that this is good, but it's making me angry because I don't get it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I think it, a lot of it has to do with like the passing of time when it comes to movies. And, and if they don't spell that out for you, things can kind of get confusing. And I don't know. I really could use maybe a little bit more guidance from Charlie Kaufman Obviously, like a technical and acting marvel. I was blown away by the production of it in, in every sense of the word. The story is the thing that sort of – it felt like to me it was leaving me out in the cold a little bit. Maybe this is too beyond my pay grade when it comes to what I can comprehend. No, no, absolutely not. And I, I – I think that I might have been able to follow along a little bit better upon my first watch than maybe you had the opportunity to. But I definitely think that it's a movie that needs multiple watches yes. to fully understand. Definitely. Let me just pose a question to you both, if you like. How did you feel watching the movie? How? What did I not feel watching that movie? I went on like a <laughs> roller coaster because I think... At first, I was very excited because there were all of these themes and stuff that I, I even texted you guys. I was like, oh, my God, is this a virus movie? Because there yeah. was like mm. so many things about viruses. And for poop. some reason, our, our poops turning green. And I'm like, oh, this is going in a direction that I was not expecting. And then it starts to morph into he's growing older. He's sort of a hypochondriac. But all of these things are true and like they're actually happening to him. And mm -hmm. as a hypochondriac myself i'm like this is terrifying uh i think mm -hmm. the one line that stood out to me was when he was talking to the doctor i don't remember the line exactly but something like is it serious and he was like we don't know and they were like, like am i gonna <laughs> die or something he's like yes or i don't it was like this weird like they couldn't give a straight answer and that is like my worst nightmare ever like but i think as it went on i kind of realized that it was a very clever movie i liked how kind of meta it was i like how um uh, you know, the obvious, they were getting actors for the characters in his own life and they were getting actors for those actors and just became this like huge growing project and is really about this like sad 
lonely man who is who is really pouring his life into making like the greatest project of all time and that to me was really beautiful i thought the ending was um also very beautiful uh but like you said i like i probably will be watching this again because there is a lot to digest and i told nick this after watching it i was like this is the reason like this movie is it's it's a it's an example of why i wanted to start this this podcast because I am yeah. so into like finding the meanings and all the metaphors and stuff. And it's movies like this. It's movies like uh, Mother that are just like they're yeah. they're examples of something that is so much bigger, but it's not like spelled out for us. And I want to dig deep and I want to figure out what what those things are. Yeah. Yeah. So those are my thoughts. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that Charlie Kaufman is really great in that he doesn't hold your hand. Yeah. Yeah. I totally understand the idea of wanting to to dig into a movie and explore the the themes and and all of that like that's great that is that is important i think i need your guidance now though like i need you to tell me what <laughs> happened in take 2 uh n- not not like the the deep meanings of it all but there were points in time where he was casting he was casting the his uh his the person to play him and then that person mm-hmm. cast a person to play that guy yeah and then that guy jumped off of a building and 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 full on died yeah and then i i was just like i guess <laughs> am i just supposed to just just accept it i don't know i I don't know how to feel. I think my emotion, where while you were like scared and felt a, a range of emotions, Jordan, <laughs> my emotion was full on naked in front of a crowd. Mm. Like it made me feel almost uncomfortable with how crazy things got. Yeah. I would still consider this a good film, but. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. And. Yeah, I think that's lovely. I think, you know, both of your sentiments are echoed in how this film was received by critics. It was incredibly polarizing. There were people who considered it really pretentious, which a lot of people feel that way about his work. And uh, they thought that it was inconceivable and hard to follow and not really sure what it was about. And there are people who praise it as an incredible And I do think that this movie is, like I said, highly subjective. And I think that it really is kind of like a map at how like each person is doing like in their own psyche in a way. And I so I I want to help you. (laughs) I want to tell you what this movie is about, but I don't really know if I can. And I... I'll just tell you like what I take from it and what I feel if, and maybe that will help. So what I feel like you're experiencing with these time jumps, this feeling of time is something largely that I took away from the film, this essence of hurtling through time. Aren't we all kind of scared of that? Definitely. Like that we're nothing that we do matters and nobody's going to understand us and what we make and what we do. And we're just kind of, hurtling through time and getting older and we're going to die. And a lot of the themes in this film are said outright in the movie through dialogue. Like, for example, 
Philip Seymour Hoffman, Caden, he says at one point, I think it's when he's addressing everybody or maybe his doctor or something, somebody, I can't remember right now, but he says, I'm afraid I'm going to die. I don't know what's wrong with me. And I want to do something important while I'm still here. And what I love about this movie is that he feels like he's alone. Obviously, there's this huge theme of loneliness. But what we can also discern from this movie is that everybody kind of deals with that in their own way. We all think that we're alone. We all think that people will understand us and won't understand the things that we do or make. And we want to make our mark on the world in this short amount of time that we're here. Definitely. And I also love that later on in the film, way later on in the film, Caden says there's 13 million people in this world <laughs> and none of them are an extra. Each one is the lead in their own story. Yeah. I really like so that So here's a little tidbit. Yeah, I, I love it. And I won't, I'll try not to get like too factual in this part, but so this movie was conceived when uh, Sony Pictures challenged, maybe challenge isn't the right word, but asked Spike Jones and Charlie Kaufman to make a horror movie. And oh my God. they oh, wow. kind of sat together and were like trying to make a horror movie. And what do we think? What are the things that scare us? And a lot of the themes that are prevalent in a lot of Charlie Kaufman's work are the themes that are relevant in this movie, like fear of dying, fear of being alone, fear of, you know, not being accepted and and what have you. And this being his debut film, I think that this is like the catalyst for a lot of the work that he ends up doing for sure. Definitely. That makes a lot of sense. Something that I also find really funny, almost almost funny, <laughs> in this film is that the characters say outright kind of what this movie is about. And it's said referentially and it's said on their own time, but they start off with like a restaging of Death of a Salesman. And he tells the guy playing Willie Loman, the audience is sad for you because we know no matter what you do to not become like your father or what you fear, inevitably, you're going to do that, yeah. you know? And that's what happens in this movie, you know? It, it, I just think that's so clever and so funny. It's like so often in this movie, we're told what we're watching, and it's so subtle and so nuanced that you can miss it, <laughs> you know? And I feel like I might have read this another time, but I guess I'll have to recheck in take three, but... This film, you know, you're really into editing, so you'll love this. This film apparently has like three times the amount of scenes that a normal film on average oh, has. I totally noticed that. There are <laughs> yeah. so many scenes. I mean, it, mm -hmm. it felt to me by the time I – and I didn't mean this in a bad way, even though I don't know that I walked out of this movie like feeling great about it. Um, I don't mean this in a bad way. It felt like it was four hours long. I was yeah. like, cause so yeah, much I know. happens. That's why I was like, <laughs> I know I was saying to you guys, man, it's fucking yeah. long though. Like get ready to sit down. And you were like, it's only like Two hours. 120 something yeah. minutes. And I'm like, Oh, hmm, I guess it is. <laughs> we're seeing like a lifetime flash before mm -hmm. our eyes. Yeah. And I think that's something really important about the, the making of this film is Going back to that, you know, life is hurtling past us. We're getting 
clips and segments. And suddenly Caden's like 20 years older than we last saw him five minutes ago. And he has six more ailments and his daughter's a woman and she's had this whole life. And I think that's so scary. Like you can blink and you know, like your life is, is you've had this whole part of your life and it's gone. You know, I, I think that the expert thing about this film is that Charlie Kaufman is able to display a large amount of every person's fears and concerns and worries and insecurities about themselves. And we can all watch it and experience that. And going back to like another quote, when he's making the play, the big play in the warehouse, he says, I want it to be truthful. I want it to be like, we're all in the same water. We're all in like the same bath water together. And that's kind of (laughs) how we are right now in life, you know? We're all on this earth together. We're all experiencing a lot of the same trials and tribulations, and we all think we're alone in that, but you can watch this movie and know that this is a universal feeling. Wow. I think even just what you said just now has kind of helped me. I I think I got caught up in it not making linear sense, but if you just take it as – the themes that it's trying to portray mm-hmm. and the message, it's a lot easier to sort of get over the fact mm-hmm. that things are just spiraling out of control very quickly yeah, and almost in a, in a, at, a, at a pace I couldn't keep up with. But, but like those feelings, like everything you're saying, I think maybe because it, it, yeah. it attacks everyone, but it, it, it has attacked me. Like <laughs> I feel those things – very strongly. That's how I felt too. And then that's, I think that's what I texted when I finished it. I was like, I feel seen yeah, because this is like mm-hmm. so insanely relatable. I also feel attacked simultaneously because this is terrifying. <laughs> it really does mm-hmm. highlight like all of, at least of my biggest fears and, and like time is a terrifying thing. The concept of forever is a very terrifying thing. And, uh, mm-hmm. it, it struck a chord and, uh, I'm excited yeah. to rewatch it for sure. The thing that stuck with me most, my favorite part of the film is at the end when it just says die and it cuts. Like that's the end. Yeah. And I was just like, wow. Like. In the middle of his sentence. Yeah. Yeah. Like. And how like his life, his art project became his life in a way that he wasn't even in control anymore. He had someone else to narrate for him. Totally. Mm -hmm. Up into his death. And that's so scary, but like also so brilliant. I was just not prepared for this. I had no idea what this movie was about. (laughs) And something so (laughs) dense and something so poetic and meaningful with all of this Mm -hmm. message to give to us. I just wasn't prepared. I, I really I agree. I need to watch this again. That's okay. <laughs> For sure. I I think the movie deserves it. I think you deserve it too to watch it again. And um I will admit it's not an easy film to watch. Mm-mm. And it's not a fun film to watch. It's like painful and I'm like I, I like films that make me cry. Like I you know, like yeah. I'm just like a crier. <laughs> like, like I watch films to get that you know, release that catharsis. And when I watch this film, I'm not really crying just because it's so bleak and so true. And I'm just kind of like, ouch, fuck, (laughs) you know? I mean, I I do, this time I did get a little bit weepy because 
I don't know. It's fucking real right now. (laughs) (laughs) So true. But um, what I love about this movie is that I think that the feeling, this melancholy that it's trying to evoke from you really creeps up on you in the way that this character uh, goes through it, you know? And totally. I don't know. How do you fucking do that? How did he do that? <laughs> it is. How did he make a movie like control how you feel? <laughs> I guess that's every movie, but I don't know. I thought it was very sneaky. Yeah. Every film, or at least I hope every film strives to make you feel something, but this one was like so concentrated and so like mm-hmm. it was full of just stuff to feel. Um, yeah. Sort of an off-topic question, but not really. As someone who has not seen Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind or being John Malkovich, how do those, just purely out of curiosity, how do those compare to this movie? Have both of you seen both of those movies? Yes. Or I have. I don't know if you have. Um, I have not seen being John Malkovich, and I have seen Eternal Sunshine a long time ago, so gotcha. probably too young to appreciate it in the way that I would rewatch it again. But I think it does have, as far as I can recall, some similar themes in Eternal yeah. Sunshine about like time and loneliness, yeah, life and loneliness, yes, and like your mark on the world, your importance as a person, and yeah. who you are to other people. You know, is gotcha. it significant? No, it's like highly insignificant, which is terrifying. <laughs> yeah, <it's> so scary. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I didn't even realize that these were all the same person. I think I made that discovery. I, somebody brought it up in, in the group or, or, yeah, like. It was me. Oh, okay. <laughs> Funny story about that. I like, because I looked up the Wikipedia page for uh, for this director and I saw all these titles and I was like, oh my God, I had no idea he wrote all these movies. And then I'm like, I don't know why I'm excited. I'm not seeing any of them. <laughs> so like, <laughs> yeah, I know yeah, these okay. titles. <laughs> And I feel like I've seen at least like the first 15 minutes of Eternal Sunshine and I can definitely see how it's made by the same director. They both definitely have the same the same vibes, but uh, I will be looking much further into this director and his work because I'm, I'm sold. I'm sold now. I just want to know everything about him. Yeah, I would encourage you to watch interviews with him. He's such a brilliant person and you would have to you be. Can see- oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. In the way that he speaks and the way that he is, his personality, you can see how he could make a movie like this. Like, he's very like, it is what it is. Like, this is my work. This is what, and highly unapologetic. Mm-hmm. And I I just really respect that. I love that. Oh, I love that so much. And for bo- both of these movies, I think, or all three of them now, they don't even try to get bogged down in realism when it comes to like, the way that they're portraying the story. I mean, obviously the topics that they're dealing with are real, but the way it's portrayed is just, um, I mean, being John Malkovich, I don't want to spoil it for you, but uh, <laughs> you should watch being John Malkovich. It's on my list. It's on my list. The The mere concept of being John Malkovich is worth watching, but it's actually a really <laughs> good movie. And uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, I also watched it a long time ago, but I do remember like crying. Like it, really? it was yeah. upsetting. I do love uh, it's So it's Kate Winslet and Jim Carrey, Jim correct? Jim Carrey. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love both of them. You so. got a little Elijah Wood in there. Yeah. Oh, really? It's crazy. Yeah, a little bit. Crazy. Oh, nice. yeah, <laughs> Jim Carrey is actually like a really good dramatic actor. Yeah. It's, I yeah, think, so good. I don't know. You're, you're an actress, Kimmy, or an actor. I don't know which yes. one you would rather be called, but. um, Actor. Actor. Perfect. Okay. 
it seems like maybe there's something tying comedy to uh, em- like a lot of times people who do excel in comedy do really good in horror. Mm-hmm. It's like something uh, at face value you, you wouldn't expect, but it seems to be the case in a lot of a lot of people's careers. They're able to transition between those pretty well, actors yeah. and directors and just filmmakers in general. Mm-hmm. Like do you. Is there something there that I'm just not seeing because I'm not like an actor like that makes more sense to you than it would to me? No, I mean, I, I think in plain terms, it, um, it's it's common sense and you'll understand this uh, when I make it plain. But uh, comedy is about truth. And when comedy is happening, it's because the character is dealing in extremes. You know, either they really, really need something or, you know, what have you. Um, but no matter the circumstances, it's real to them and it might not be funny to them. A lot of times it's not funny to them because they're dealing with high highs or low lows. So we only as the audience are getting the illusion that it's funny because of the extreme circumstances. So I think that that's why comedy actors are so good at transferring over to drama, um, because it's real and it's truthful and it's just the lens that we're seeing through that makes it either drama or comedy. Does it work the same way backwards? That's a really good question. And there is the concept of, you know, technique behind both of them. You know, you have to consider like comedic timing when you're doing comedy. And a lot of that is something that's just instinctual in a lot of ways. Not to say that you can't learn it. You definitely can. I think there's definitely people who have an affinity for it more than others. And I would say from personal experience, no, I mean, I don't speak for everyone. I think it is really harder to go from drama to comedy. Um, I don't know. Just that seems to make more sense. I wish I, I, I wish <laughs> I had like more information on it, but just knowing from the stuff that I've done, it is technical, like way harder to go from drama to comedy. At least it is for me. I feel like I find a lot of drama to be funny. Have you guys seen Manchester by the Sea? Is that the one with the Afflecks or one Affleck? That's with Casey Affleck and Michelle Williams is in it. I feel like I've seen like the first 20 minutes of it, but that's it. Oh, damn. Sorry. Okay, well, no, no, you're good. <laughs> um, there's this part where it's it's a terribly tragic movie. It's so sad. Oh, my God. Talk about drama. Right. <laughs> but there's this part where the separated couple, they meet up and because of like societal contracts and stuff, they kind of force each other to like talk to each other and they have to, it's so, they're so grievous and it's so terribly sad. And she's trying to apologize for what happened. And he's so awkwardly trying to be polite, but he doesn't want to be there because it brings back so many horrible memories. And they're just kind of awkwardly standing in front of each other, like sobbing. And it's almost funny, (laughs) even though it's horrible, you know? And there's another part in the movie where the son, he wakes up in the middle of the night and there's a bunch of frozen chicken in the freezer and he opens the freezer and it falls out. And he's trying to stuff. It's funny already. Yeah, (laughs) it's funny already. And he's going through like, he's going through a grief too. He's lost somebody. And all he's trying to do is put this frozen chicken back in the freezer and it won't fit because it's a small freezer and they keep falling out. And he starts having a panic attack. Oh, wow. And Casey Affleck comes in. He's like, what the fuck are you doing? What's going on? Are you okay? And he's like, you can't 
put the fucking chicken in the freezer. Like, why would you do that? And it's sad because we know that he's not actually upset about the frozen chicken. He's sad because of his loss, but he's putting all his frustration into this stupid frozen chicken. <laughs> it's almost funny, yeah, you know? I could totally see that. So I, I think that this movie, Synecdoche, does it really well. Sometimes some of the stuff, even though it's so bleak, is almost comical. You know, like all that shit at the doctor where he's like, you know, no, I said neurologist yeah like, yeah you're yeah. you're gonna die and he's looking at him like he's crazy or whatever and <laughs> don't you have those feelings sometimes at the doctor where the doctor's like obviously you have psychotigosis you know and <laughs> and you're like what the fuck are you saying can you please give me some ointment like <laughs> you know we gotta laugh or else we'll cry you yeah. know thank you for, for that sure. that was, that was awesome yeah who like <laughs> I mean, of course, with a movie like this, we're definitely going to dive deep. But like, I'm already so enlightened. This is great. Yeah. <laughs> I also have a trick up my sleeve uh, because after this movie, oh. I was like, oh, very existential, a very philosophical. I don't know how to decipher this, but I, I want to. And yeah. I have a good friend from uh, high school who is a philosophy major. And just out of the blue yesterday, I texted her. I was like, have you seen this movie? And she's like, no, but I watched the trailer and now I'm very intrigued. And I was like, oh, well, we're uh, we're doing a podcast yes. about it and like no pressure. But if you want to watch it, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Maybe I could use you as a resource for the podcast. And she was like, oh, yes, absolutely. So she uh, she just finished it tonight. Yes. So like I am I am so ready. Um, <laughs> that is so cool. Yeah. I'm so happy that's happening. Yeah, yeah. Hell yeah. So I will I will uh, relay her thoughts as well in take three. This woman is a philosopher already. She's a genius yeah. she is like she's a genius i mean no doubt any anything that comes out of her mouth i am just constantly in awe sam if you're listening uh, samantha i love you so much um you will be featured i'm already fallen in love yes. with you just what i'm hearing about you she's great she's oh and great. she's wonderful her. also but she yeah. is a genius she's a sweetheart uh, i'm already obsessed <laughs> I'm so excited. I'm so glad that we were able to do this. Thank you so much. Me too. For sure. I'm so excited. And uh, I can't wait to talk to you guys about editing and the box office in the next. (laughs) Yes. And nothing else. You don't have to worry about that at all, Kimmy. I got this. Oh, good. Good, good, good. (laughs) First of all, shout out to Nick and Jordan for killing it as always. Am I right? Yeah, they're awesome. Hey, I'm Stephen Crocker. I wanted to take a second to invite you to check out my new podcast called Dumbest in the Room. I talk with people who have different jobs and are life experiences and learn a little bit about what it is that they do and how they got there. The best way to stay learning is to always be the dumbest in the room. It's been a lot of fun talking with and learning from people, and I hope you'll join me. You can follow Dumbest in the Room at DumbestITR on all platforms, and the show is available everywhere you get podcasts. Back to you guys. Take three. All right, start recording and clap for me. Yeah, boy. That was so good. Oh I my know. God. I had to like do it like extra because you you hyped me up. So <laughs> we are professional hype men. <laughs> okay, I need to back my chel. <laughs> I need to back my chel. <laughs> I need to. I need to fact check myself right off the bat because I I found something in my research that is a direct difference from what I said in in take two and it's this there's actually 204 scenes in Synecdoche New York which is only two times as many as the average screenplay so I said three times as many I I assumed it was three times as many scenes but it's only two times as many scenes which is still 
It's still yeah. It's still it's still an incredible amount. Yeah. Yeah. And we are a hub of misinformation, so if you do not feel bad at all, you are right at home. Wonderful. Actually, by correcting yourself, um, that's what makes you stand out. Already <laughs> elevated the podcast at this point. We're just like, oh, we got that wrong. All right, moving on. I think that I'm in the running to be the best guest if I'm... I mean... Uh, it's very possible. You certainly have the best claps, and that is... A direct diss on Kayleen and Courtney. <laughs> Y'all's claps. I still remember them. It's been said on air. It's official. No, we love all of you ladies, but um, we love Kimmy's claps the most. Sorry. Uh, sorry. Yeah. Sorry, sorry about not it. sorry. Of the guests, though, right? Right. No, I love are, Kimmy's claps. No, most. my claps are still good. Right? But Kimmy's <laughs> claps were a surprise. <laughs> so I like surprise. Kimmy's claps were like, like a like a surprise party on your birthday. <laughs> You're like toilet paper. Like I know I have toilet paper. Yeah. You know what I mean. But toilet paper is necessary. I'll take it. I guess I'll take it. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> anyway, I'm so excited to hear what you guys found. I'm I'm honestly so excited. I'm kind of concerned about my research, honestly. But you know what? I was nervous about take two, and I think that that went really well. So maybe I'm just like, you know, scaring myself. So there's no need to be nervous. I think we are all going to bring awesome stuff to the table. I'm very much looking forward to the next however many minutes. <laughs> the next 60 hours. Get ready. Buckle up, bitches. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I normally like start off with a bunch of shit that nobody cares about, but I do. I care so. about it. I oh. I care about it when you speak about it. So that is so sweet of you. <laughs> All right. So this film, I guess I can kind of see like maybe it went over some people's heads because it has a 69% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 71% audience score. But I think just after having seen it, like I am still impressed that it got a 69. Not that it's bad, but that it is pretty polarizing in some regards. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, people just might not get it, might feel like me and maybe feel negatively, even though like I didn't understand it and I still have respect for it and would still probably recommend it to somebody maybe who could comprehend it a little better than me. But I guess not everybody feels that way. And they do this thing on Rotten Tomatoes where they have one of their employees write a like a little summation of what all the critics say. And I just uh, have begun including them. It says, Charlie Kaufman's ambitious directorial debut occasionally strains to connect, but ultimately provides fascinating insight into a writer's mind. The strains to connect part, I think that was a big part for me. I was not... I was not sure where I was going for a lot of it, but the way that it ended, it still sticks with me. I mean, this has been several, it's like over a week since we did take one and two. I still remember the end scene. I really liked that a lot. Yeah, I, I think on upon first watch for me as well, definitely I thought about that last mm-hmm. moment for a long time afterward. Yeah, it sticks with you and it's powerful. Uh, okay, so this film opened originally in only nine theaters to an opening weekend gross of $172,194. And it uh, went on to make uh, $3 million domestically, $1.3 million internationally, which is about $4.5 million worldwide. 
and uh, its widest opening was only in 119 theaters. So that's not terrible. Unfortunately, though, this did not have a micro budget. Yeah. <laughs> the movie's budget was $20 million. And uh, so that's rough. I mean, and according yeah. to Charlie Kaufman, based on my research, um, that wasn't what he had hoped for. He, he uh, had hoped for a bigger budget to accomplish the scope of his vision when he was not awarded that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Damn. Well, I guess maybe the, the executives are happy that they did not do that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, a lot of times money isn't the only thing that movies are aiming for. I mean, money is the main thing, but it's yeah. not the only thing. Uh, it was nominated for the Palme d'Or, which is the top prize at Cannes. Uh, and it also won the Independent Spirit Award for Best First Feature and the Robert Altman Award at the 2008 Independent Spirit Awards. The Robert Altman Award is actually given to honor an outstanding ensemble cast director and casting director all as a, a unit. And I mean... I don't know what it was up against, but I think this movie had a fantastic ensemble cast, casting director. I mean, like the sheer amount of people that were in this film all doing wonderful jobs. I mean, I'm very impressed by that. Like I said, in take two, my very good friend Tyler is a huge fan of this film. And he pointed me towards two of his favorite videos regarding Charlie Kaufman. And one of them uh, is an interview. And I believe he must be on a festival circuit or some kind of press circuit during it. But it's like a 45-minute video. And it's honestly such a funny video. Because the interviewer, from my perspective, is not very good. Like, I think that he's asking kind of trivial questions. and, And you can tell, based on, like, Charlie Kaufman's behavior, that... He's seen this before. He's done this before. He's not interested in entertaining, you know, kind of like surface level uh, questions or anything like that. And I just love how kind of, and he says it about himself at the beginning of the interview. He says like, I'm just like this pissy guy, you know, and, <laughs> and he's kind of, he kind of is pissed off in the, in the video, but I just think he's very like self-aware about his behavior and stuff. But anyways, um, he talks about how the, one of the very first questions that the interview asks him is like, you know, you don't really do a lot of press. And he's like, what are you talking about? Like, everybody always says this. Every time I do press, I'm like, I'm sitting right here. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. He's like, I, I, I'll be at like a press junket and they'll be like, you don't do a lot of press. And he's like, I was literally over there with like 40 other journalists doing press. And now I'm here doing press with you. Like, and he talks about this idea of this, like kind of mythological misrepresentation of him, him and, and of people like somebody says one thing and suddenly that's like mythologized. And that, that is who that person is when in reality, like it's kind of just lazy journalism. Anyways, he says that the idea that the film is not well-received, he says, is also an example of this mythological misrepresentation just because it didn't sell commercially. But he says you have to look at the wider scope of what was happening during that time. He says none of the American films at Cannes that year sold to any company. 
Oh, wow. He says that the idea that the film wasn't successful was perpetuated by lazy journalists and the rest of the industry situation like wasn't taken into context. Like as a journalist or a critic or something to be so cavalier about writing some little bad thing about a movie where a lot of people put their heart and soul into making it, those journalists don't understand the kind of responsibility that they have on people's livelihoods, you know? He's like, this has been my only job for the past five years. And for someone to dismiss it within seconds is a crappy thing to do to someone. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And he says from like a really sincere place, he says, I've, I really tried to do something great here. And if people don't like it, that's fine. Like I welcome it, but you have a responsibility of at least, he says, like maybe an hour or something to try and understand <laughs> what it is that you're passing judgment on, you know? I yeah. think it's one thing to not understand this movie. It's another to disrespect it. Because I think yeah. there is certainly enough there to where even if you don't understand it, you can be like, there's so much here. There's obviously so much work and intention mm. and attention being put into this. And yeah. I don't know that like for someone to, I don't know, to diss that or disrespect that seems... I mean, take away the brilliant writing and the really multi-leveled story. If you are a film fan and you know any of these people's names, respect it because they're in it. <laughs> I mean, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Michelle Williams, Diane Weiss, like uh, Catherine Keener, like uh, Jennifer Jason Lee, even though I fucking hate her in this movie. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and Charlie Kaufman, like. That name, if you love cinema, like that name is going to come up. You know, he's a, even at this point, he was a very successful writer or at least a very uh, renowned writer. I don't, I don't want to speak on specific success or, you know, but um, I'm sure he was pretty successful at that point. I feel like you'd have to be to pump out a project like this on your first, like your debut thing, something this. Yeah. Like in depth and profound, you'd have to have some kind of. I mean, he had an Oscar for writing Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind at that point. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I totally get it. A little later in the interview, he says, when he reads criticism of things that he's done, he says, critics often write negative reviews from what he views as like a godlike point of view of judgment. And what he's trying to do when he writes his screenplays is right from a place of vulnerability and humanity and and humanness. And sometimes he'll see a review from someone who was truly moved by the pieces. And, you know, that's what he's hoping for. He he talks a lot about, you know, I I have a complex of like wanting people to like what I do. Like who doesn't, you know? Yeah. And he says when he reads those kinds of reviews, they're speaking from a personal place so Mm -hmm. it also watching this interview which i have seen before because my friend tyler shown it to me in the past it really made me like look at myself and i really this isn't the first time i've had this conversation with someone but i've noticed a lot especially because you know we have a, a movie review podcast essentially that i find myself saying a lot of times when i don't like something i say that's bad that's not good And, you know, I've been in short films and stuff and I've made my own film and sure, it's not fucking Synecdoche, New York by any (laughs) means, but it was a collaboration 
of yeah. artists coming together and trying to make something that they were proud of and that maybe would move somebody and to dismiss it so quickly, that's bad. That's not good. I think is a disservice to those people. And it makes me feel really bad about my criticism because everybody puts their heart and soul in something that they're making and, you know, wanting to be true and wanting to be real. So I'm just trying to sway myself from saying stuff like that, like, oh, that's bad. And instead being like, that's not for me. That is a great insight to share. We like need to be better on that. I mean, I know I do, but like, I think you would agree yeah. you as well. Not that I... I don't think that you necessarily do it any more than I do, but um, everybody needs to know that. I think a lot of times people say that's bad, not necessarily us because we do this a lot, but some people just say that's bad without even trying to understand why. Even if we understand why, we need to say why. We need to you know, explain why in, in these platforms that we have. But if someone doesn't even know why they don't like something, maybe you should try to figure that out. And I'm talking to our audience, like try to examine what it is about the film that you did not like. And I don't know if this is resonating with any particular person that's listening, but like you don't have to be a renowned critic or anything like that to talk about what you appreciated and didn't appreciate in a film. And having that conversation is exactly what he wants. He wants that respect yeah. of giving it the time of day. Mm -hmm. Because I think there is definitely, there are ways to say that something is bad without being disrespectful. Like yeah. you, you are allowed to dislike things, but it's the way that you interpret that and, and the way that you portray that that's important. Kayleen is really good at doing this thing when she finds something about a film that she doesn't, that doesn't sit right with her or she doesn't like, she will find a solution. You know, if, if I were in charge of making this film, this is what I would have done to improve that. And I think that that's like a really wonderful, like analytical way and responsible way of showcasing your criticism, you know? Yeah. That's what they're, uh, her and Daniel are doing on yeah. Terminator. Yeah. That's exciting. So K Kayleen and Daniel are, had, I think they've got like the first episode is like Terminator one and two out so far, but they did them all. And like they offer, you know, things that could have been better about them and, and uh, routes that they could have taken that would have made these films better. Obviously, Terminator 1 and 2 don't need to be any better, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> the rest of them do. And I, I've not listened to, I think it dropped like today when we're recording this. I've yeah. not listened to the entire episode, but so far it's amazing. And I'm, I'm really excited to hear more. I'm just going to interject. Um, so slight tangent here. I don't think we've ever... I'm sure we've discussed Daniel on this podcast, but you know, I know I always roll my eyes when we bring up like explaining what we explain movies is and everything. Have we brought up, have we talked about Daniel's podcast at all? Yeah, I think because I've talked about how we've been guests on it, but I like, I know we've both been on it, but I guess for listeners reference. Yeah. For listeners <laughs> reference. Okay. Daniel <laughs> is a very good friend. Well, he's become a very good friend of ours too, but uh, we met him through our aunties mm -hmm. and he has his own podcast. So we've both been a guest on it. It's called super serious movie men. Yes. Right? And, or is it, a super serious oh, podcast, man. I think that's the spinoff. He has the blanket podcast channel, which is super serious podcasting or super okay. super serious podcast. And 
the extra channels are like super serious movie men or, you know, whatever he wants to talk about. So he has a vaster scope of curiosity and bring that makes total on. sense. Yeah. I had no idea there was anything more than movie. Like there's a, more than just a movie branch. I had no idea. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Very, very cool. It's a great listen to like, yes. It's, he's, and he is, he's a very good interviewer mm-hmm. and a very nice guy. <laughs> um, and so that's, that's who Daniel is. Yes. And obviously Kayleen is our auntie, the <laughs> one that's not good at clapping. One of the two that's not good at clapping. And I don't want to just say that their claps are bad. I want to explain that they they sound like two noodles uh, <laughs> flopping together. You're getting so specific. <laughs> yeah, I just need to – I want to have the conversation because I want to give them the respect. What's a I'm better sure they way? they hard on their claps. What's a better way that they could have clapped maybe? Um, to- maybe <laughs> – uh, you need to some buy some sort of apparatus or something. <laughs> Get two frying pans and bang them together. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so now I have a question for you. Shoot. So the Tyler that you were talking about. Yes. And that's the Tyler that worked as the cinematographer on your film. He was our director of photography and yes. my editor. Yeah. That is amazing. So you both are award-winning filmmakers now. Oh like, my gosh. I don't know if he already was, but I, so he's the one that just won. Yes, we we had um, San Diego Film Week this past uh, week ago. Was it a week ago? And he won Best Cinematography and Best Editing for his work on Phase. That is wow. so spectacular. And you have already won what? I won the competition that the film was created for. Yes. Yeah. And um, I did submit it to a couple other film festivals on, I don't know if you know, Film Freeway is like the fe- oh, yeah. the festival uh, website. Yeah. Um, a couple on there. I really kind of like missed out on submitting it to festival season because of COVID. And I kind of just thought that, you know, that, that the film was, you know, over kind of like my, my work and effort on it was kind of over. And, and then I kind of realized that there's more stuff going on and people are allowing larger timelines for things to be submitted. So I kind of missed the train on that and could have submitted it more. Um, But I'm so incredibly Honored that he worked with me. We love working together. And I already told him, if I haven't said it once, I've said it a thousand times. I'm so proud of him. He's Aww. an incredible artist. And I just can't wait to... He's actually working on something else right now, which is a secret. <laughs> oh, very cool. But I'm just so proud of him. I'm so excited to see his work. And we plan on collaborating on other work in the future. Well, that we echo that sentiment. We are both proud of Tyler, who we don't know, but hopefully someday we will meet him. And we are very proud of you as well. I'm sure that he'll listen to this, so he'll hear you. Oh, good Hi, deal. Tyler. Hi, Tyler. Yes, way to go. Great job. All right, cool. the elephant's making an appearance. I'm worried that he can hear you. Oh, I really, if he can hear me, maybe like <laughs> sit down. Stop, stop, stop. He just walks back and forth all day. It's his living room. Like, of course maybe he's Maybe he's walk. like sit getting down. his steps in. Maybe, maybe. Oh, yeah. Okay. They just come he's working them. on his fitness. Okay. <laughs> he just he needs to. Uh, and you're his just... witness. yes 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 that's awesome um i guess i could wrap up this like failure versus success section with like i have other points from this interview in my other notes but this kind of wraps up like this section unless you have more to talk about regarding 
you know, criticism and um, perception and stuff. I feel often very criticized by Jordan, and I don't think that he gives me a fair shot. And so this is this is actually counseling. Uh, Kimmy is a therapist as well as a sea captain. Jordan, I feel like what Nick is saying is you need to give him a grander capacity to improve upon the things that don't sit right with you. Yes, but also know... (laughs) That I really don't need to approve, improve much. Yeah, well, he is who he is. I, you know, I've kind of reached the pinnacle of, <laughs> of personhood. I can't even like, <laughs> I can't even like improv any kind of response. This is just so ridiculous. <laughs> Feeling very attacked right now, actually. <laughs> oh, God. oh my goodness. That was fun. Proceed. Yeah, yeah, you ignore him. Did you get sunburned? I did because I walked to Courtney's house today for three miles in Converse and I shouldn't have done that. Oh my. So yeah, I am sunburned. I didn't notice until now, but woo. Do you tan or you just become, do you like Well, I guess I could have put on some sunscreen, but I just didn't think that I needed to today. So I gotcha. I, I burn pretty much most of the time. I feel you, like, uh, me too, and it it doesn't ever turn into tan, I'm just red, peel, and then if I go outside again, red, peel. I mean, I'm one of those people that that needs, like, an umbrella (laughs) when I walk around. What is your um, heritage? Oh, just white. I don't know. (laughs) I came out of, like, a box of Cracker Jacks. You're like, alabaster is my heritage. (laughs) It was, like, we were probably, like... I don't know, potato farmers or some shit. I have no clue. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. Um, at the end of the interview, the interviewer is kind of starting to understand where he's coming from a bit. And they talk about failure and success. And Charlie Kaufman says, I I don't really know what a failure means because to me, a failure can be as beautiful as a success. And the interviewer says, yeah, I mean, you see like, you know, what just came out that year was like Dark Knight, I I believe. He says, Dark Knight just came out and six months down the line now, people are loving it. But did it really stir your soul? Like, is it a movie that stirred your soul? And Kaufman's like, yeah, yeah, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I suppose. I haven't seen it. So, but, you know, I'm assuming not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's funny. (laughs) It stirred my soul. Yeah, I was going to say, it stirred at least one of our souls. (laughs) Yeah. And the interviewer says, well, yeah, it wouldn't really, really stir your soul like, like, and he can't say it. He can't pronounce the name. And Charlie Kaufman has to correct him. He goes, it's synecdoche. And then it smash, it cuts to black. It's like, it's really funny. (laughs) Wow. That, like... What a terrible interviewer then. Like wow. that's, you should know those things going into an interview. What kind of idiot can't pronounce the title of this film? <laughs> they start to like, gain some rapport like as the interview goes on, but I really think that he just like made a bad first impression and and Mr. Kaufman was just like, "Oh boy." <laughs> I really like him. I I really like him. I think that he's really like brutally honest and in his work and in his demeanor and the way that he is self-reflective and I'll get to that a little bit later in my notes um but I just really appreciate that and I understand how some people might believe that to be like pretension or something is that a word pretension it is now (laughs) but I think that he's just I think he knows who he is and I think he knows his flaws and his faults and he's very open about 
coming to terms with those things. And he's very much like an it is what it is kind of thing. And I don't think he takes a lot of shit, but I, I think that he deals with his own insecurities just as well as any other human being can, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'll kind of chime in before we get down to like the nitty gritty specifics of this movie. This movie is nothing if not a metaphor on top of a metaphor on top of a metaphor. It's just like symbolism everywhere. And that's like obviously no secret. Anyone that watches this can see that. And I too, maybe this was the same interview. I'm not sure. I'm sure there's probably more than one interview out there of of Kaufman. But the interview that I saw, he says that uh, the whole point of writing something is to have people experience it. And if I were to define every metaphor or symbol, it interrupts people having their own individual experience of the movie. He says, I tried to put enough in there so that people can interact with it on an individual basis. And going back to how he can sometimes maybe seem pretentious, uh, do I think that that seems kind of like a bullshit cop-out answer to anyone who asks him about these metaphors? Like maybe, most likely not. But uh, for the purpose of this podcast, it kind of was a little bit infuriating to me because I think the whole purpose of a take three is to figure out why it's to get those metaphors and really like try to understand them. But at the same time, I think it's a new take on art as a concept for me, at least I think for so long, I kind of viewed any kind of art as this artist is trying to portray their ideas in a way that makes sense to them, to the artist. And it's up to us to interpret like what that was rather than sort of providing a canvas for us to sort of project our own ideas, which he is really doing in this movie. So he's giving us this like self-reflective work of art that we're supposed to give our own meaning to, which is exactly what Caden is doing in the movie. So I think like, obviously there's a lot of, Ah. yeah, there's a lot of um, like personal, you can tell there's a lot of personal uh, points or reflections in this movie, I guess. Um, And I think that, I really do respect. I really admire the director for that because I think it's a really dope move. I think it's super meta and very genius. Um, So like mega props to him. I think it really is like each of us is sort of watching this movie and making our own like can't like we're given this. This movie is a blank canvas and we're supposed to project our ideas onto it. Yeah. I think if we were told to paint this movie, every single person's painting would be different. And like, that's like a gift. Like that's really, really cool what he's done with this. Yeah. And so I, beautiful. Wow. Yeah. In that regard, I really, I, th- I think like he really did come off as like a little bit pretentious, but after learning this, I'm kind of like, okay, that's, I see what your intention is here yeah. and it makes a lot of sense and it's, it really is beautiful in its own way. Did so. you come up with that painting thing? Uh, maybe. That was really good. Mm-hmm. Way to go. Well, I loved it. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. really funny. I didn't write this down, but I, I had a conversation with somebody several months ago. We were watching a movie. It was my second time seeing the movie. It was Black Bear. I don't know if you guys have seen it. I've not seen it. So you you talked to us about that movie. We will eventually uh, watch it and give you our thoughts. I like it a lot. There's a lot to unpack with it. The people that I was watching it with were not really necessarily movie people. And one of them said, I don't like it. I think that a movie maker, a filmmaker has an obligation to its audience to give them some kind of meaning and like to help them understand what they're trying to bring across. And I was like, that kind of defeats the purpose of art. Do you understand? Yeah. Like you, all art is uh, in the eye of the beholder. 
you know, like it is all what you make it. And that's why it's such a subjective art form, because it's not the filmmaker's job to spoon feed you what they're making, you know, and that made me so angry. (laughs) (laughs) I totally get that. I was literally about to say it is not the filmmaker's job to define their art for you. It's funny that we bring that up because we were just talking about how <laughs> I dislike when when I get spoon fed in a movie. I, what was uh, Palm Springs? We we're just talking talking about Palm Springs, and like, there's certain aspects of that movie that really frustrated me because it really did feel like they were just handing me the answers, and I don't I don't want that. Have you seen Palm Springs? Yeah, we. It was like one of the first quarantine movies that Kaylee and Courtney and I got to watch upon our reuniting so oh okay i feel like i remember hearing about that something either on the podcast or from one of you okay that makes sense uh we we have like an episode and i yeah it's out now um (laughs) and jordan didn't like like the last little bit of it because it was he felt like it was wrapping it up too much or maybe playing to an audience that was different than you know the audience he belongs to uh, people who maybe didn't get it people that felt a different way about the film my audience of one <laughs> no i mean I, I, can... I do know that kayleen has a little bit of beef about that she yeah <laughs> we, we we hashed it out a little bit but i think i think we're, we're okay we're good. <laughs> your relationship will stand the test of time <laughs> i think i th- hope at least on my end. I hope she's not like... Uh, she told me she don't like me no more. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Um, oh, okay, so is it my turn? It can be. Well, it better be. This movie is actually only the first of four movies that Kaufman has directed. Did you know that? I didn't. <laughs> and now I do. He had already written uh, Being John Malkovich, Human Nature Adaptation, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind by the time he had made this. If he made other movies, those are the only ones I had heard of. So uh, I think you're right. I think that's it. Again, I understand how he had some clout to get $20 million because a lot of these other movies are very well respected. Yeah. And I, <laughs> being an editor, I uh, went and wanted to look up this movie's editor. And the editor of this film's name is Robert Frazen. And if I'm pronouncing that wrong, I apologize. I'm sure he's a listener. Uh, <laughs> he's worked with Kaufman on three out of the four films that he's directed. So uh, Synagogue, New York, How and Why, and I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which is the, the Netflix movie. Yes, yes. The most recent. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the only one of Kaufman's directorial efforts that he didn't edit was Anomalisa, but that makes sense because it's an animated movie. Uh, he also edited Smoke and Aces, The Highwaymen, The Founder, and The Little Things, uh, which is the, it came out this year too. It's on HBO Max. And I want to see it because it's got... Like Denzel Washington in it. Oh, <laughs> no. That one with Jared Leto. Oh, is that not good? I, I heard it got, like, panned. Oh, no. Well, I'm sure the editing was good, at least. <laughs> that that point went way quicker than I thought it would. Someone else just jump in. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I can jump in. <laughs> Piggybacking off of that and how he feels like, as a director, this being his directorial debut, this interviewer asked him if it gave him a good feeling. Like, how did it feel? to see his words depicted on screen in like the fruition of his direction, you know? And he says that, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it feels great. Like it's just what it is. And he says, I don't even know what that really means. 
All right. <laughs> the interviewer tries to like, you know, backtrack and he goes, well, is it what you imagined? And he's like, no, it's not like what I imagined. I, I had one thing in my imagination and that's what I saw on paper. And that becomes something else when you get other people involved, you know, it becomes what it is. You get two people on set and they take your words and they make it theirs who they are in the moment as these characters. And he says his job as the director is to deal with that. And that kind of goes with what you were saying, Jordan, about how, you know, it's, it's all these people coming together to just do what it is. And that's, I don't know, like that really resonated with me as somebody who does performing like the my favorite kinds of directors are not the ones that kind of like block you and and force you into their image it's it's the directors who say here here's what's on paper and with some guidance now it's yours you Mm -hmm. know you have to trust and I think that that's something that Charlie Kaufman was awarded in this film, having all the actors and people that he wanted to work with, which he speaks about that he's been very lucky to always work with the people that he requested, that they have that trust to do great things. This lovely thing that he said about Philip Seymour Hoffman, they said that um, Phil told him, that's what he says, Phil, (laughs) (laughs) casual, whatever. (laughs) He says, Phil says that he believes acting is what happens in the first take. And because of that, they didn't do a lot of takes. Like, they did what they could. And um, they actually shot the relationship scenes between Catherine Keener and Philip Seymour Hoffman first. And they did that for, like, two weeks. And then Catherine left, and they continued on without her for, like, the next four weeks. And they talked, and they're like, wow, it feels like Catherine has been gone forever which he said really served the character for the remainder of the shoot. And so he said he was really proud that it happened that way. So I just really like his stance on directing. I like that he really believes that it's a collaborative effort and it's kind of like what he writes and then it kind of takes on a life of its own. It's something I really respect. I wonder if being a writer uh, and writing so many movies that he then had to hand off and trust that the director and all of those people were going to, because a lot of times writers don't get any respect. You know what I mean? Writers are like king on television or queen or, you know, writers are like top of the totem pole in TV, but they are not in in, in film. filmmaking. And it's a shame, but I wonder if, you know, being in that mindset for a while helped him realize, okay, you know, I, I, I do have to trust my vision in the hands of other people. And like you said, you know, you love a director that gives you something and says, it's yours, make it yours. As an editor, I love that too. I think what's the best types of directors are the ones that trust that they've picked the right people. Mm -hmm. A huge chunk of directing is getting your crew together and your cast together because that's where you're going to pick the people that either do a shitty job or a great job. (laughs) Trying to micromanage them isn't going to get anybody's best work. So it's a running joke, obviously, that we can't pronounce the name of this movie. Uh, So I decided to look... Continue. Yes, okay. Uh, I decided to look at the word synecdoche. I know it is a literary device, 
Uh, it's a figure of speech, uh, and it is when you use a part or a fraction of an object to represent its entirety. For example, if I say that someone is wearing heels, you would understand that I meant that they were wearing high-heeled shoes, right? They're not wearing, like, just the heels. Yeah, okay. They're wearing, you know, the whole shoes. And it can also mean, like, the opposite of this, where you use the idea of the word's entirety to represent a fraction of it. And, like, for example, if I said New England won the Super Bowl, you can obviously assume that I'm not talking about the entirety of New England. You're, I'm talking about the football team. What What are they called? The Patriots. Good job. Okay. <laughs> I was like, I got to check them on it. Sorry. <laughs> so if we look at this word as it pertains to the movie, we are clearly seeing a part of his life being represented by this, like, entire massive production. Or we could maybe argue that we're seeing the entirety of Schenectady being portrayed in this small fraction of a city. And I like how that works both ways. Yeah. And I think there's also a quite a bit of confusing words with other words in this movie. Like that happens a lot where he misinterprets something or something is said in a different way. So I like that the title is a fitting representation of that using Schenectady as a play on Schenectady. Yeah. Boy, that was hard to say. <laughs> I actually, I wrote that in my notes and then I wrote out the phonetic spelling so I would get it right if I had to say it. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, I think that that might even come into play with one of the motifs, which I, you know, I just copied this from Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> Happens all the time. I do yeah. all the time. No worries. <laughs> but it's um the miniature paintings and the impossible warehouse, you know. I don't know if you guys can see like a correlation to it, but it just popped into my head when you when you said all of that. I love the juxtaposition between Caden's massive theater piece and Adele's tiny, tiny paintings. And this is something that Tyler and I talked about is such a significant point is Adele's art gets smaller and smaller and smaller to the point that you can't even see it. And she's increasingly and eternally happy. And Caden's goal is to create something so vast and all encompassing and it's never finished and it's never complete and it's never right. And he's so unhappy and everything that made his life fulfilling that he cared about and loved is broken a lot like this, how the city is represented in his theater piece. And I, uh, this is what it says on Wikipedia. (laughs) (laughs) The scale in which both of them work becomes increasingly relevant to the story of the film as it progresses. By the time Caden goes to the gallery to look at Adele's work, which is many years later, you can't see them at all. So in a way, like Adele's work is much more effective than Caden's work, as it turns out. Caden's goal in his attempt to do this sprawling theater piece is to impress Adele because he feels so lacking next to her in terms of his work. And Caden's work is so literal. And the only way he can reflect reality in his mind is by imitating it full size. Inevitably, like, it's such a dream image for him, but he's not even interacting with it successfully. And it just kind of becomes this cyclical, never-ending creation that never meets its end. You know, it's never fulfilled. Yeah. Like, it, it is sort of infinite. He's created this universe where everyone has a a representation for themselves. Everyone has an actor for themselves. And like 
his life may end, but like, does that mean that the production's over or like, does it just keep going and just getting bigger and bigger and bigger? And, and those people cast doubles for themselves. Exactly. It's just, I mean, it's just infinite. So it like not only continues on forever, but it spread forever Mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. It's so fascinating. And I, I don't, I still go back to that last scene where it didn't help him. It didn't like, he just seemed not happy at the end. And that, It's heartbreaking. Yeah, I I, um, watched this video essay by this guy who has a YouTube channel about film, and his name is Karsten Runquist. Oh, I, yeah, totally. (laughs) Yeah, I've definitely, I've used him before for sure. Oh, great, that's great. I like that a lot. He creates this video essay um, about why Synecdoche, New York is his favorite film, not to sway anybody's opinion about whether or not it should be theirs, but just why it's his personally. Yeah. And he says, you know, kind of to pointed to what you just said, he says, Caden wants to do something significant, create something big and tough and meaningful. He wants to make a difference. He wants to feel like when he dies or after he dies, there's something he did for the world that touched people. What we learn in the film is that this goal can't necessarily be accomplished, at least not to the degree that he wants to make it happen. And while so many films like this, in essence, try to strive to find purpose and tell the audience to find purpose and opens them up to that discussion, Synecdoche is kind of a film that looks at the direct impact that those kinds of philosophies have on a person, you know, rather than like forcing them to be like, what does it all mean? It's like, this is what it does to me in my life. Yeah. So many people, I'm sure you guys understand, struggle with, I want to make something that's impactful before I die. And death is something that, you know, in our culture, we fear and we don't really accept. And we want to make sure that we've made a mark before we're gone. It's such a short time that we're here and that anxiety and fear that we're all going to be lost. We're all going to die. We're all going to fade away and then people will forget about that. Us. That's a universal feeling, you know? So it makes this movie so scary. It's like, it's terrifying. I'm like, like, "Uh, I don't know what to do. It makes you want to curl up into a ball, but it's like the exact opposite effect it needs to be. No, I I think, I think what it does is it really creates this like bubble of relatability where everyone, like it is a universal shared experience that we all kind of have when it comes to death and wanting to make an impact on this world. And um, like even the idea of like having children and wanting our legacy to live on and stuff. It's yeah. like, it is, it is a shared experience. Um, and it's cool that he was able to tap into that. Yeah. It's comforting almost in a way, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Yeah. What I'm realizing about this film is that even though I didn't maybe understand it when I was watching it, I think it's a film that can speak to you emotionally and you don't even necessarily realize it. And, and the points that you guys are bringing up, uh, I'm like, oh, okay. Well, that's that. That I can like maybe put a name to the emotion that I received from that. I don't even know if that makes sense, but like, I only kind of was getting it. I couldn't. I couldn't explain how I understood it or how it was affecting me. Isn't that so genius, yeah. though? Like, that's 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 Kaufman's genius here. That's what I was saying in take two. Is that the first time that I watched this movie, I suddenly looked inward and realized that this film was making me feel a certain way. And mm-hmm. it was just, it was such a weird, you know, internal experience. And like, I, I totally get where you're coming from. 
Oh, good. I'm glad. <laughs> to kind of piggyback off of uh, the contrast between Caden and Adele, this was something I know I mentioned Samantha uh, in the last take. She actually did watch the movie and she brought up some interesting points and I'll, I'll talk about some of them. But one of those points was about how, you know, Caden's project just gets bigger and bigger as Adele's get smaller and smaller. And to sort of dive deeper into this idea, I think there's a a lot of contrast between these two characters. I think the first time that we ever see Adele, she's coughing into her elbow. She's dismissing her daughter's green poop. She's claiming it was probably something she ate. And I think if, if either of these things happened to Caden's character, we know that his hypochondria would have made it a much bigger deal than Adele has. It's very clear why they didn't end up together. It's very clear that both of these people have two completely different outlooks on life. Uh, even in yeah. the car in the car scene when they're fighting and one has one idea to try and calm down Olive and the other one's like, no, no, like don't say that. And it just becomes this big mess. And So it's, like on multiple levels, they are like diametrically opposed yeah, to each other. Right, right. And it's sad because you can tell he still feels for her throughout. Uh. <laughs> Uh, I know that. I think, uh, Nick, you brought this up in take two, but you you didn't know what the burning house was about. And I found the supposed answer, which I think makes a lot of sense. It's from Wikipedia. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It says the burning house has a motif uh, in an interview with what I believe is a French name. So I apologize if I mispronounce it, but Michelle Julian, I think. They say, what's up with that burning house? You know, what? why did she choose? What is all that about? And he says, well, she made the choice to live there, you know. In fact, she says in the scene just before she dies that the end is built into the beginning. She says at the beginning, you know, I, I want to buy this house, but I'm afraid that I'll die in the fire, this perpetual fire that's raging in this house, <laughs> almost comically. Yeah. And that's exactly what happens. And she chooses to live in this house. And that's the truth about any choice that we make. We make a choice and that resonates throughout our entire life, no matter how trivial it may seem. Yeah. Okay. That makes total sense. (laughs) I found some of that in my research as well. And the film actually opens up like fading from gray into the picture. And then it fades to gray at the end and I thought that was a really clever note. Oh, yeah. As well. Like bookends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of times we make decisions knowing how it's probably going to end and or at least thinking we might. And then we do it anyway, hoping that we maybe could change the outcome or that it maybe we're thinking about it too much. Or I know with me, my anxiety, I'll think about something, I'll worry about it. And then I'll be like, Nick, you're worrying about this too much. It's not going to happen. And then it happens. And I'm like, well, damn. (laughs) So like, sometimes, you know, maybe people should trust their guts a little bit. Like maybe she shouldn't have bought the house in the fire. Yeah. Someone brought up in a video that I was watching that 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 scene in particular was really the first time in the movie that we were able to kind of realize that anything goes in this movie like that that is the point where it's like okay we're really not based in reality anymore like this is this is Kaufman's world this is Caden's world and uh it's not it's not based in reality but it is certainly trying to tell us something you know it's so funny because like yes obviously that is correct but Mm -hmm. I was consistently shocked I was like 
How? How have they been performing this for 17 years and they haven't opened? I don't understand yeah. this movie. Okay. I mean, obviously, like, okay. <laughs> Jeez. I love it. I love that it's like, it's, there's essence of realism, but it's, it's clearly like a world of absurdity, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. And, yeah. and you know what? As is life, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah. I think that there yeah. is an essence of absurdity to our everyday life, you know. It's such a it's such a miracle that we're even fucking here. How absurd is that? You know? Mm. And scary. Again, it's terrifying. Like <laughs> I don't know if you guys listened to our arrival episode, but I, I talk about how one day Courtney told me about alternate universes, infinite universes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's she said that she had like anxiety about it for like years and years <laughs> after she like started learning about it. And I was like, I wish you never told me that. It's <laughs> <laughs> like every time I do, I do it so often. Like today I, I crossed the street or something and this car kind of like got close and I was like in another universe. Kimmy wasn't fast enough. Yeah. <laughs> and, yep. she, and now I'm dead. Insane. Now I'm dead. <laughs> In another universe, we never interacted via social media and never became friends. You know, how know. scary is that? That's that's a sucky universe. And truly, <laughs> I know, right? It is terrifying. I'm not sure if either of you noticed this, but this went completely over my head. The passage of time is obvious. Like, it's, it's really bonkers, like, all throughout the movie. But specifically in the beginning scene, when, like, Olive's pooping, she's making breakfast, and, like, he's just waking up. The alarm clock wakes him up on September 22nd. Yes. He goes downstairs to drink his coffee, and the news ta- the news talks about an earthquake in uh, Kashmir? Kashmir? Kashmir. Kashmir. Uh, on October 8th. <laughs> he grabs the morning paper, which advertises that it's the 14th. The milk expired on the 20th, which he claims has expired. And then the radio later wishes the listeners a happy Halloween. So that whole first scene, <laughs> did you notice that? No. I would, like I saw a video explaining oh that, God. and I was like, that went right over my that head. That is so. I cool. love it. It's so cool. <laughs> this is kind of cool. I obviously didn't like notice this or, and know this stuff, but um, I found this and I thought this was neat. So apparently, uh, the name next to the buzzer on Adele's apartment is the word capgrass, okay? And apparently the capgrass delusion is a delusion where an individual believes that someone or even everyone in their life has been replaced by an identical-looking imposter. So, That's fitting. <laughs> yeah, that, that makes so much sense that he would put something like that in there. I was reading on a little bit, and I'm thinking – Maybe this like influenced the story in some regard because apparently cases in which patients hold the belief that time had been warped or substituted have also been reported. The knowledge of this very well could have helped him write this thing, you know? I mean, people are being replaced and that time is distorted. Yeah. Like that's that's the movie, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, that's what's happening yep. throughout the movie. And he completely misses that. Like he's, he's screaming that his four-year-old daughter is getting tattoos and stuff and exploring vaginas. That's where I was like, I'm, <laughs> I'm lost. Somebody <laughs> like, can we help me? Yeah. Okay. And then she was like, she's 11 years old. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Isn't that so sad? Mm-hmm. I did. I didn't write this down, so I'll be par- paraphrasing, but I did read in my research somewhere that, 
you know, Olive, she grows up so fast and she's a child when we see her. And then when we hear about her, she's aging rapidly. But he's always referring to her as a little girl. And that's always how our parents see us, you know, <laughs> as their children. And I just kind of like got a little heart ping. <laughs> and what's horrible, horribly, terribly sad about this movie is that, yes, he's a hypochondriac and he's suffering from all these like strange ailments and stuff. And he's aging just crazily. But he also outlives everybody that he cares about. Oh, wow. Yeah, you're right. So terrifying, too. I'm sure that that's something that Charlie Kaufman put in as a fear of his own. Like, if I were to put myself in that position, like, seeing everyone around me dying, but also kind of seeing their accomplishments and how much they su- they've they succeeded in comparison to my own life and stuff, it, like, really adds to that element of loneliness and isolation and stuff. I understand very much how this was intended to be a horror movie. Yeah, yeah. It hits on such a different level than like any other horror movie that I've ever seen. Yeah. Existentialism, mm-hmm. you know? I'm so uh, glad you brought that up because I remember going back and looking at that note that we mentioned in take two, but the movie that Spike Jones went to go on and make after having that discussion was uh, Where the Wild Things Are. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> I love that movie. He was even going to direct this for a period of time, but then made that instead. Have you seen that movie? Like, yeah, yeah, I've seen it. It's a long time ago, but I've seen it. Yeah. I love that movie. It's cute. Yeah. It's cute. And like heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. It's a good one. It would be interesting to go watch it back with that perspective. Like, how is this something that you fear? For sure. Yeah. And I just have this new respect for Charlie Kaufman. The thing that I'm like really drawn to right now is Anomalisa. I want to see the animated film. That's Daniel like, actually recommended that to me after I'd watched uh, Synecdoche for the first time. Did he like it? Yeah, he he was like, you should definitely watch it. Oh, good, good. Because, like, I, I like the... Um, we watched... What is, what is the one we watched? This I'm not comparing the two or anything. What is the one we watched that was by... Um, oh, my God. Okay, he's the director <laughs> that everything is symmetrical. Wes Anderson. And- Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic Anderson, Mr. Fox. Yes. Yeah. And I really I love that movie that. so much. Yeah, that was really good. <laughs> and so like animated movies that aren't, you know, part of the Disney engine or aren't part of a ginormous studio rank machine. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with that. Some of my favorite animated movies are from that. But I like these like almost indie animated movies. That's such a weird concept because I know how animated movies are so expensive to make, you know, and take so much time. And the fact that someone would be able to make something probably somewhat in the vein of a movie like this, like I know how Charlie Kaufman writes. It's probably very strange in some regard. I'm very interested to see how that came across and how he was able to do it with animation. I also read... Just because I was just like, oh, I'll, I'll click on this. There are apparently three voice actors. It's like the main guy, the main girl, and then one guy in his role says everyone else. <laughs> I thought that was really neat. That's cool. I, I feel like this is the first time I'm hearing of this movie. Is it stop motion or is it? it at least it looks like it's kind of stop motion. I've only, I saw pictures of it. So it's like play maybe. Mm. Yeah, I haven't seen it either, but yeah, you're. I think it's something like that. I'm definitely going to watch it soon, so I will let somebody know what in the hell. It's Sunday night. <laughs> These people just don't 
sleep? <laughs> it's Sunday night. I mean, it's twelve forty-four. They, <laughs> we are also up. <laughs> okay, we are up, but they're hammering. I don't know. Hammering. I don't know. <laughs> What the fuck? I absolutely love your apartment, but I hate all of your neighbors. <laughs> no, you do have you have nice neighbors, but then there are also some neighbors that are extremely loud. It's it's the walls. I just have unfortunately thin walls. Unfortunately, I have a neighbor that I, up upstairs. I believe I'm pretty. We have um on location like coin operated laundry down on the first floor. Uh huh. But I swear that upstairs they must have it in unit like secretly because sometimes this like ominous worrying will like (laughs) emanate in this room and it's really scary and I'm scared of nuclear stuff so like it it, like freaks me out and it happens often and I don't know what the fuck it is your apartment's haunted (laughs) like living around people i mean you're bound to hear noise yeah. that makes sense but it's almost one o'clock in the morning and it's sunday night people have to work tomorrow i'm just like I, these people are just screaming in the hallway and yeah, i know <laughs> welcome to my apartment <laughs> i've i think i've just gotten used to it i don't know i don't know maybe it's just throwing me off because we're <laughs> podcasting anytime i'm trying to like record something in my house is always the loudest day yeah anytime i'm trying to do a self-tape it's like lawnmower day you know? Yep. <laughs> Always the case. I know it's been a while since we talked about it, but going off of your last point about crab gras, crab grass, cap grass, cab grass, cab grass, cap grass, cap grass. Uh, another word, another word that uh, they brought up, uh, Cotard is his last name. And there is something called the Cotard delusion, wherein one believes he is a walking corpse or is dead or dying or decaying. And I think how, like, that's funny that's that's his last name since he's a hypochondriac. Clearly that was intentional. Genius. Uh, I think it's also made clear by how obsessed he is over the obituaries, especially in the beginning. Mm -hmm. So much so that he confuses Harold Pinter's Nobel Prize announcement with his obituary. He's like automatically, oh yeah, he died. And then it turns out he won the Nobel (laughs) Prize. But um, yeah, just funny little words that Kaufman included that clearly were intentional. I always wonder that. Like, do they just like know? Was it you guys on your um, on your Fight Club episode that where you said, "Is it that Chuck Palahniuk already knows that you can make like bombs out of like soap or whatever?" Yeah. <laughs> yep. You know, if I was a writer, like, what weird ass knowledge do I know about that I could be like, <laughs> "This is a characteristic of my." people you know (laughs) absolutely it does like it makes it makes me feel like not inadequate but like it's it's very impressive little segue here i didn't don't have a lot about it but i just like to talk about it briefly um the person who composed the soundtrack for this movie is john bryan and i was showed his work separate from watching this movie by my friend tyler and it just gave another appreciation for another collaborator on this movie. He His soundtrack is beautiful for this film. And I feel like the soundtrack emulates the themes and tone of the film so well. If you go listen to it, which I highly recommend that you do if you're just like on a walk or something. It's <laughs> so simplistic and child like has a childlike whimsy to it. And it also has an essence of commiseration and melancholy to it. It's like, it's so heavy, even though the songs aren't very complex instrumentally. 
So I think that it it's just really reflective of what this movie is about. And I wrote some lyrics down to share with you on one of the songs called Little Person. The beginning of the song talks about how I'm just a little person. I'm just doing my little job in my little town or whatever. But then it says, maybe somewhere far away, I'll find a second little person who will look at me and say, I know you. You're the one I waited for. Let's have some fun. Life is precious every minute and more precious with you in it. (laughs) I love that. I love that. Because, like, isn't that really, like, just what we want to do, like, by watching this movie and also, like, the characters within it? We just want someone to share life with and kind of commiserate about our life experiences together. Like, commiseration is such a communal need, you know? Why do we vent to our coworkers about our bosses, you know? Like, why did I come here and, like, you know bitch about that chick at the coffee shop who wouldn't wear her mask, you know? (laughs) Why am I about to kill everyone in the hallway right now (laughs) that are howling at one o'clock in the morning? I, I just really like the idea that yes, we're suffering, but we, we, we all are, you know, let's do it together. We're doing it together. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah being social is, you know, sometimes just as important as like food and water and stuff. Like we need that connection. So I don't know if you guys have learned this about me by listening to our podcast, but I love movies that make me cry. Like (laughs) I, I, I get like knocked for it and stuff, but I really actively seek out movies that have some kind of like catharsis or make me cry. And I read a long time ago that when you are sad and you listen to a sad song, it releases the same chemicals in your brain that you do from receiving a hug. When you listen to a happy song when you're sad, it tells you the same things in your brain that it would be if someone was saying, get over it. Wow. Wow. I think that that does that for me for movies that are about like pain and suffering and hurt. It's <laughs> like I, I get that catharsis. I get that release that we're all dealing with this together and I can feel that. You know? Yeah. yeah. That's why I think I love this movie so much. It's fascinating. Yeah. It like kicks in loneliness's teeth. Like it's like there's someone else out there that is, that's just like you. Like it's that relatability thing. Like that makes sense. That's awesome. That's really, really cool. Yeah. I love that. And I, I think that's speaking of genius and movie making, I think being a film scorer is like so insanely otherworldly to be able to do something like that successfully out of this world amazing. I did also read that any of the songs that required lyrics in this movie, uh, I like I know in the beginning there's like a little girl that's singing about Schenectady. Kaufman wrote those lyrics and I think he wrote that song that you referenced. I don't um, he, doubt he, that. I I'm not I didn't look into it. Oh, Tyler's gonna be so mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't look and check. I don't know if John <laughs> Bryan wrote it or Charlie Kaufman wrote it, but it wouldn't surprise me if he did. Yeah, I could be wrong. Maybe I misread something, but I'm I'm I was under the impression that he wrote all of like the the lyrics of the songs. But but yeah, that's awesome. I knew that you cried a lot. <laughs> I do cry movies. a lot. Yeah, I didn't realize that you actively like looked for them. Not that's, that's not that I'm like 
oh yeah, like gonna cry today. You know, <laughs> I'm like, I just, I, rip, I, Daniel, I was on Daniel's podcast as a guest, and he said, "What do you look for when you go to see a movie?" And I, I mm. said something along the lines of, "I'm looking for an emotional ride, an emotional release." You know, mm-hmm. um, I'm looking to be moved. You know, yeah. and. I used to make fun of my mom all the time. Like she w- was ha- such a crier when I was growing up. And I had this <laughs> joke too. like, mom, you cry when Barney makes new friends or whatever. <laughs> and now I am that. I am that. <laughs> I can't watch a goddamn commercial that's like done mildly well without like crying. It's so annoying. <laughs> I'm not like trying to do it. I just know that it's going to happen because I feel that empathy for what's happening. And, um, sometimes though I will cry at stuff. Like I'll, I'll get that emotional release. I'll cry and I'll know, Oh, I didn't really like that actually, you know, (laughs) but I, I can't help it. You guys, (laughs) I can't. Honestly, it's something that I love and wish I did more often. And I I tell you all the time, Mm -hmm. like I love crying. I think it is such a wonderful release I think it feels great. And I think like I really genuinely wish I was able to do it more, especially like not to get too personal here, but like growing up as a gay man and like being told to always toughen up and like not maybe like let's suppress our feelings and not show them as often. Like it is really like being able to cry and like genuinely being able to cry. It is a great, great feeling. And I do wish I did it more often, but just like you, like when I see that you oh, no. felt smothered in that way, that's not <laughs> no. okay. It's, I mean, it's not, and I don't want to, I don't want to like call out my dad or my parents or anything that like they were not, I had great parents growing up, but I think society in general, like they, you know, it's, it's, it's universal. I don't think it's like specific to my upbringing, but like, I mean, there were expectations that like, you know, you're, you're a guy, you should be I didn't know you were gay. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So yeah, like to, to wrap up this like really kind of, uh, not personal, but crazy discussion. But uh, like it is when you when you get that that good cry feeling. Like I I totally understand how that affects like a mu- movie going experience. So I get it. I'm there with you. Yeah. Well, like I watched that movie Life Itself. You ever watched that movie Life Itself? No. Oh my god! It, are you the one that likes it? I don't like it. No. You don't. Okay. <laughs> like it's the one with it that it's made by the same creators who made This Is Us and it's yeah, like a, it's okay, like a so tear trap. It has like really bad reviews. It's but terrible. Like okay, I know somebody I'm who likes this movie. <laughs> we just talked about we just we literally just talked about not saying things that are bad. But I think <laughs> that there are some things in this world that you can see are objectively not great, you know? <laughs> like so, you know, just reneging on that a little bit, but no, I fully watched that movie. And fully sobbed and I like ate that shit up and I left and I was like, I know that I didn't think that was good, you know, (laughs) still got me. And like, I also watched, um, I went with my sister to see, uh, damn it. Rise of Skywalker, the last, uh, Star Wars movie. I know, I know, I know, (laughs) I know. And she came to watch the last Jedi with me, which I loved. I thought it was so Mm -hmm. dope. And my sister who doesn't really watch movies very much, not in the same way that I do. Like she watched it with me and she was even like, that was dope. And <laughs> um, we went to go see Rise of Skywalker together. And I like cried at the end. I cried at the end and we left and she was like, so like, what did you think of it? And I was like, 
I hate it. Yeah. <laughs> it can take you on an emotional ride without actually being yeah well made. And a lot of times, you like that. Good on you for being able to <laughs> to know, because I think sometimes I'll trick myself into thinking I like something just because it made me cry at the end, <laughs> or it gave me like the emotional feels. Like if it if it has a strong ending, I'm like, you know what? That wasn't that bad. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it is, especially <laughs> that. But like, okay, you know, the end of the nine-part uh, Skywalker saga, th- yeah, like I had the feels as well. Yeah, um, the nostalgia, the, you know, the fan yeah. service, whatever. Although that's <laughs> stupid, like I'm Ray Skywalker, even though like. Get out of here. You are you are not a Skywalker. <laughs> you don't just get to call yourself a Skywalker. <laughs> so I know. stupid, but I get it. Don't go see that movie. Pretend it ended at eight. <laughs> so I ran into a piece of research that I recognized from a previous episode. In our Matrix episode, I actually, I'm glad I'm bringing this up because I can kind of uh, redeem myself and apologize a little bit. Apparently I butchered the author's name, but there's a book uh, featured called Simulacra and Simulation by Jean Baudrillard, not Jean Baudrillard. <laughs> <laughs> talks about relationships between reality, symbols, and society, in particular the significations and symbolism of culture and media involved in constructing an understanding of shared experience, which I think like obviously makes sense for The Matrix, but it also is fitting for this movie. And when I know like throughout the, the film, he kind of he's like, oh, I have a name for my for what the project's going to be. And he goes through a couple. But one of the proposed titles is... Um, simulacrum or simulacrum simulacrum yeah, yeah but it like it plays off of off of that book so i thought that was uh interesting That's so neat. yeah i saw that note and i was like i've talked about that author before when did i talk about that and it was in the matrix i love that you're redeeming yourself from an episode we, we did, did two years ago years and years ago like 70 episodes ago <laughs> talk about like feeling like my conscience is clear now that That's was fine. the seventh episode we did Kimmy. <laughs> <laughs> so Seven. for like maybe i don't know listeners who if people are jumping around and that's what we encourage people to do i'm just i'm just joking on you no worries very cool though very cool that makes sense i do remember him saying that and i'm like i don't know what the fuck that means <laughs> gene but i mean that happened a lot gene baudrillard no, i should I'm be so about, ashamed i'm talking about simulacrum, simulacrum oh yeah, 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 yeah. Or whatever it is yeah yeah um, I also want to talk about how there's a lot of repetition regarding his gender identity as well. I think so often people confuse him with this character, Ellen, like several times, uh, when he calls his wife, he, she picks up and she's like, Oh, Ellen. And he's like, no, this is, you know, this is Caden. And when he's asked if he wishes if he was born a, a girl, he claims sometimes I think I might've been better at it. And he even takes Ellen's role in his own production. And Ellen, the actual person, is never even seen in the film at all, which I think is interesting. Like, it kind of, like, maybe he just invented this character. Maybe this is an identity deep inside him that... She's the one who goes in and... And cleans. And is cleaning, but it's really him. Yeah. And then, okay, somebody explained to me this. All right, supposedly he has... uh, He... He abandoned his daughter to go have homosexual sex with his... <laughs> yeah, with Eric or something. Yeah, what the fuck? Yeah. I think that that is a story that Adele told their daughter 
to dismiss his um, absence. Oh, my God. Oh, look at you, Kimmy. Look <laughs> at you. That's so obvious. Like, duh. Yes, obviously that's what that is. Oh, my God. Thank you, Auntie. Yes, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> that's just what I think, you know, like, and yeah. because she's, because Olive is so, she's on her deathbed and she's so married to the story that she's been fed her entire upbringing. He has no choice but to adhere to it and ask for her forgiveness of it, even though he knows it's not true. And the fact mm -hmm. that even after he's accepted this falsehood, she doesn't give him the satisfaction of forgiveness is so heartbreaking. Yep. Yep. You know, he just admitted to an untruth and she dies believing that that's what happened. Yeah. Damn. Uh, actually, one last thing relating to that, uh, Samantha, my good friend, she also commented on that scene with with the daughter dying, uh, and she says, "quote We don't have any reason to think that she doesn't speak English." She's referencing the um, how they have to speak through uh, translators. It seems like a metaphor for the distance between them, maybe, or perhaps it's related to all of the homonym wordplay, a comment on how inadequate language can be when we're trying to communicate with each other, how easy it is, how easy it is to misunderstand or talk past each other. Um, Yeah. So like just drowning in. She she sounds like the coolest person. She She just like decided that she just like with her knowledge, she was like, it's probably this. Yeah, legit. That's and, and that's, wow. And I, I want her on this podcast so bad. I just don't know what Get movie she here. would want to do. Get her I here. know <laughs> she's legitimately one of the smartest people I know, and I am just in awe every time she speaks. I so. wouldn't do any research. I'd be like, Sam, it's all you. Take and it away. Yeah, you don't even need to do you, any girl. research. Just tell us your thoughts. <laughs> Talk at us, please. <laughs> wow, I love that. Um, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I painstakingly looked. For words that were easier to say than the title of this film. (laughs) So I have uh, alternate titles for this movie. So we have Sacrilegious New York, Soliloquy New York, Sabulinarium New York, (laughs) Sacramentarianism New York, Seismology New York, Salamandroid New York. Salamandroid? That one yeah. might be my favorite. Yeah, yeah. I like that one, actually. He was like, is that a salamander robot? And it's just like another name for a salamander, apparently. Okay. Okay. Spectroheliography, New York. Sarcophagus, New York. Sanctimonious, New York. Sololuminescence, New York. Shuftoscope, New York. Surreptitiously, New York. Slurvian, New York. Snallygaster, New York. That's my favorite. This is so much. Syllogism, New York. Uh, Santorini, New York, Solicitude, New York, Sternoclavicular, New York, Sociolinguistics, New York, and Semi-Transparent, New York, all easier to say than Synecdoche, Synecdoche, New York. Synecdoche. Synecdoche. Syn. Syn. Neck. Neck. Do. Do. Key. Key. Yeah. Synecdoche. Not to be confused with Schenectady, which is the actual city. Yeah. You got it. We'll get there. We'll get there. Mm-hmm. We'll keep practicing. Okay. <laughs> that was wonderful, though. Thank wow, you. Wow. That, that You're gave welcome. me so much joy. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, well, I guess I'd like to sum up our conversation here with one last tidbit. This comes from the other video that Tyler recommended to me, and it's Charlie Kaufman attending the BAFTA and BFI Screenwriters Lecture Series. So he's invited to give a lecture to aspiring screenwriters there. And it's 45 minute long video. And I think it would be a crime for me to talk about it at length because he does, he read such an incredible speech. You should just go watch it. But I did write down his opening statements and I, I, would love for you guys to hear it because I think that it sums up this guy so well. He says when he opens his speech, I've never delivered a speech before, which is why I've decided to do this. I wanted to do something that I don't know how to do and offer you the experience of watching someone fumble because I think maybe that's what art should offer. An opportunity to recognize our common humanity and vulnerability. So rather than being up here pretending I'm an expert in anything or presenting myself in a way that will reinforce the odd ritualized lecture, luxury model, I'm just telling you off the bat that I don't know anything. And if there's one thing that characterizes my writing, it's that I always start from the realization and I do what I can to keep reminding myself of that during the process. Aww. I... I love that. And what's Charlie so funny Kaufman. about this, yeah, it's wonderful. And I, what's so amazing about this lecture is that he's been brought there to give advice about writing and he basically spends the entire time not lecturing at all. He just <laughs> says, you know, do you, be you, bring yourself to your writing. That's what's going to make it special because we all walk around feeling like, you know, I want to do something important. I want to do something wonderful. And maybe you sit around and think, maybe I'm not that important. He says, do that. And maybe that will be interesting. <laughs> God, I, going into this was really, really scared. I felt like it was just like way over my head, something I could never really understand. But he's really offering like, ourselves that seems so strange to say but he's he's like reflecting us and it like that feels so comforting and that is like i do feel like i was just hugged by him throughout this whole experience <laughs> he's like i'm here i understand yeah i get it i don't know if charlie coffin would hug you <laughs> no no probably not he did it with his art though and yes that's, that's fine <laughs> i i think that he does no you're right i think that he does do that with his art because time and time again he talks about you know I, I do try to make something good. I struggle with this idea of wanting people to like me and think that mm -hmm. I'm good. And I honestly just try to do what's true. I love that. <laughs> good for him. That's really awesome. That's really awesome. God, this All is right, a trip. Well, we're at 3,000 bars. I still don't know <laughs> what that translates into. Do you know how long have we been recording? For an hour 40. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> Okay, so as the editor of this podcast, I'm going to end this. Thank you so much for uh, sharing this movie with us and coming on here to talk about it. You know we love you. You know you are just one of our absolute favorite people and the best clapper we know. We just are so grateful to have you on here and to know you, and we love you. 
And uh, yeah, just thank you very much. Thank, thank you, you so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk about this with you. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. I can't, I can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> we are so excited that you were able to do this. Yeah. Oh. To everybody that is like, I've never heard of this movie. I can't pronounce this movie. <laughs> Even our discussion, I don't, I don't think we gave it away or anything. Like you still need to go watch it. Yeah. It's worth watching. And I and, and at almost two hours recording this, I feel like we haven't even skimmed the surface of this movie. So yeah. like, there's so much to explore. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But we need to finish, so no more. <laughs> no more, guys. Hi, friends. Kimmy here. Hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Take 3 and getting a healthy dose of existential dread. And thanks a million for your continued listenership and support of these two stupid sluts who I love. They really deserve it. If you can't seem to get enough of movie critique and analysis that leads you to question your own insignificance among the vast universe, you can come hang out with me and my two best friends, Kayleen and Courtney, over at We Explain Movies, available on all major podcasting platforms and social media at We Explain Movies. If you like what you hear, feel free to leave us a five-star rating and review and subscribe. There, you can listen to us question our own sanity in our episode on The Lighthouse, hear me sob about a meteoric apocalypse on our episode on Greenland, or weigh the pros and cons of wrapping your shitty boyfriend in a bearskin and lighting him on fire in our episode on Midsummer, which is actually some great advice. See you next time.